Windsor uh, became queen of this country. As I'm sure you're probably all aware, uh, Elizabeth becoming queen was really a two-stage process. Wasn't it, Elizabeth becoming queen, a two-stage process? Uh, I'll explain what I mean. First of all, Elizabeth became queen in February, I think it was 1952. Don't hold me on the date. But she became queen automatically upon the death of her father. Isn't that right? Her dad dies automatically. Technically speaking, she assumes the monarchy of this country. So that's stage one. There still, though, remained a, a public confirmation of this fact, didn't there? So what happens? Well, actually, after quite a bit of a gap, the following year, I think it's June in 1953, there's all the singing and dancing ceremony uh, that takes place at Westminster Abbey, that before the watching crowd, in fact, before the watching world, there is this public confirmation that Elizabeth is ruler over this nation. Two-stage process. Well, something like that, as you can see, I think, can you, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, isn't there? There's a two-stage process going on here. Because last week we were shown God's choice of monarch for Israel. Who, who's the man? Saul is the man. And at the start of the chapter, in chapter 10, at the very beginning, God confirms choice. And Samuel anoints Saul, and he anoints him king over Israel. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember, actually, it was a very private ceremony, that, wasn't it? It was a private anointing of Saul. Not even Saul's servant was allowed to view it. So what needs to happen? There needs to be a public confirmation of this fact. There needs to be this public confirmation that Saul is God's choice of king. And tonight, friends, for a short while, that's what we're going to look at. And as we look at this public confirmation, I do think that you and I will be pointed to a greater king. And we will be shown that you and I must live in loyalty to him, the heavenly monarch. So a public coronation. And tonight, I only want us to look at three basic things from this portion of scripture, three headings. And the first is this. I think we see in in these verses a daring preacher. We see a daring preacher. Have you ever been to uh, an induction, an induction ceremony of a minister? Have you ever been to such a thing as that? I think that there is a moment in an induction service that, that knocks the wind out of everyone's sails. Because like, you might disagree with me. I actually think an induction of a new minister is an awesome thing. It's a really great thing. You know, a time of uncertainty for a congregation might pass, you know. And uh, there's this new chapter that's opening up. And then the day comes, the day of the induction. And it's an awesome day. You know, all the people come in and there's the friends of the congregation, people you haven't seen for a lot. And then the baking comes in. That's my wife's favorite part of any induction service. And all the people are gathering together. There's excitement. And then people begin to take their seats at the induction. And there's a bit of a buzz, right? 
I mean, there's a bit of an excitement, anticipation in the air as they wait to thank God for this provision. They wait to hear from the new man. And there's this excitement. There's this big buzz is building up. And how do we begin it? How do we begin an induction in a Presbyterian church? There's this big buzz. And then uh, we get up and we start with reading this incredibly long edict from an act of assembly from like 1873. And that buzz dies. You know, everyone is left immediately flat. Now I think in 1 Samuel chapter 10, the prophet of God, Samuel, is a bit of a buzz killer. Now do you see what I mean by that? There's a real excitement in this portion of scripture. Like in, in verse 17, what's happened is that Samuel has gathered, did you notice, he gathers everyone together. Now get your head around that for a moment. Like everyone, all of the people of Israel are gathered together before Samuel. And what do they know? Why are they there? This 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 massive group. They're there because of the king. You can imagine the excitement. They're just about to find out who their king is, who God has chosen to be king. These people are, they're excited and they're seeing their friends that they haven't seen for, for ages. There's this buzz that's building and where are they? Verse 17. It's Mizpah, the place of victory, the place where they've just defeated the Philistines. There's all this excitement. And what does Samuel do? He gets up before them and he starts with a rib. Rebuke. Can you believe it? Here? Is it here? All these people, all this excitement, and you issue a rebuke. It doesn't seem to be the time nor the place, but that's what he does. Now here's the thing. I think in this rebuke, Samuel reminds the people of two things. First of all, he reminds them what God has done for them. Look at it with me. Look at verse 18. Look what he says. Stands before the people and he says, look, remember, God's redeemed you. I mean, he's the one who took you out of slavery in Egypt. He's the one who brought you free and subsequently he's protected you and cared for you. So what's the first thing? He reminds them what God has done for them. But then the second thing, he reminds them what they have done to God. And I love it. Because he doesn't sugarcoat it. Have a look at it. He doesn't make it more palatable. Look at verse 19. Oh, he's not pulling his punches, is he? Today you have rejected your God. And we know what that is. They've asked for a king like all the other nations have. It's rebellion. It's a rejection of God. Do you notice that Samuel uses the language from the Decalogue? He uses the language that begins the Ten Commandments. Why? To remind them, this is you breaking the first commandment. Do you see, friends, what Samuel is willing to do here? That though this is the last thing that this gathering want to hear, that though this does not seem like the right place, it does not seem like the right time, Samuel is willing to declare an unpopular truth. Now, as we apply that to London City Presbyterian Church, wouldn't you agree, that's what we need to be willing to do. If we are going to be salt and light, if we're going to be Christians in London, 
Don't we need to be willing to declare and tell people, preach unpopular truths to this world? But let me break it up a little bit this evening. Isn't this what we need from ministers and from pastors? Isn't it? Maybe if you're feeling generous tonight, you can, you can appreciate the temptation that a minister faces. Do you? Like, what does a minister know? He knows that week by week, on a Sunday, he is going to get up before a crowd of people. Do you see the temptation? What's the temptation? The temptation is to say what people want to hear. The temptation is to say the easy thing. And you know, and I know, can't be like that. What must the minister do? He must do as Samuel does here. And get up before the people and declare, regardless of the cost, regardless of how it's received, declare the message that God has for the people. So this is for ministers. Isn't it also, second of all, for elders, elders in the congregation? Again, try and sympathize. Try and think. Enter into the temptation for elders in a church. Maybe they hear of overt sin in the congregation. Maybe they hear about people in the life of London City Presbyterian Church who are not living as they should be and are dishonoring the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the temptation for the elder? Man, the temptation is to turn a blind eye, isn't it? Not to engage with this, not to do anything about it, just to let that overt sin slide. But what do we see from Samuel? What does Samuel do? He is not pulling punches, is he? I mean, he confronts the sin head on. I mean, he takes on a nation here. He, he addresses the people. He addresses the sin. Ministers, elders, what about parents? I think parents in here, they can relate to what I'm going to say, that sometimes as parents, we want to take the easy path with our children. Disciplining children is so tough. Chastising children is really difficult. And we love them, and we don't want to discipline them. And the children don't want to be disciplined. So what do we do? Very often as parents, we let things we shouldn't slide. Consider Samuel. What does he do for the honor of God? Because God's honor is at stake. He does the harder thing and he issues the rebuke. And then the last one here. As we apply that, isn't there application actually for every single believer in this room? Isn't there? Because look at us, look at tonight. You know, Samuel is here before the nation. Look at us. We are gathered before the masses of London, aren't we? And, and why have these people gathered? They're wanting a good time. That's what London's about. They want to enjoy life to the fullest. That's our city. The people want a celebration. They want, they want jubilation. What must we do if we're Christians? We must be willing to declare an unpopular message to this city. Not just a message that says, you are sinners. But a message that also says, there's a king. There is a king that can redeem you from the chains of your slavery, the bondage of your sin. 
Don't we need to do what Samuel is willing to do here? What does he do? He's willing to declare an unpopular message. You, if you're a believer tonight, me, have got to be willing to do the same thing. A daring preacher. Second thing that we see here is a disobedient appointee. (laughs) So we've got a scene. Well, I've seen it as Samuel's gathered all the people together and he's issued this stern rebuke. But at this point now, the confirmation or the choosing of the king, it begins. And it begins with casting lots, doesn't it? Truth be told, I've looked into this and, and truth be told, I don't think that we can be really sure about what casting lots really looked like in the ancient world. I think there are two things that we can say about it. One, we do not cast lots. You know, now that we have scripture in its entirety, now we are able to pray in and through the name of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to faff around looking for special guidance. We pray, we read scripture. We don't cast lots. Second thing that we can say about it, see when they did cast lots, God was directing and superintending every, every, every element of it. I'm asking you, whose choice was Saul? God's choice. Listen to Proverbs 16.33. Tells a great verse. Tells us that the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Whose choice is Saul? God's choice. He ordained this, orchestrated, superintended the whole thing. Now, would you agree with me that what we're dealing with tonight is humorous? Come on. Surely you smirked as you read this portion of scripture. No. It's certainly ironic, isn't it? Think about the background here. What do the people do? They reject God. He's not powerful enough for us. He's not majestic enough. We want a human king. (laughs) They cast lots. And they can't find the king. He's nowhere to be found. Do you see the irony? What do they do? They have to go back to God. They have to go back to the all-powerful God to inquire. uh, Excuse me, where is our king? You see? Isn't it funny? Isn't it ironic? And isn't that humor... Isn't it added to by where it is that God says the king is? Let's read it together. It's brilliant. Look at verse 22 here. Come on. Verse 22. So they come to God and they say, right, we've cast lots, but do you know what we can't? Okay, it's meant to be Saul. We're Saul. We we can't find him. And God says, (laughs) God says what? He's hidden amongst the bags. He's hidden amongst them. Isn't it humorous? I mean, can can you see it? Can you see? For whatever reason, Saul is entirely unwilling, entirely reluctant to become king. He doesn't want anything to do with this. So where is he? Cowering away in the corner and he's stacking up suitcases so that he can't... It's ridiculous, isn't it? Let me ask you two questions that are not funny. One. Tonight, you, are you hiding amongst the baggage? Isn't it true that as Christians, very often we can shrink back from areas of Christian service. We can shrink back from ministry that God is calling us 
two. Is that where you are tonight? Are you hiding amongst the baggage? This was very true of a friend of mine. He used to talk an awful lot in seminary about his calling to the ministry. He would talk about it an awful lot. And he said for years he resisted God's call. For many, many years, God, he knew, was calling him into full-time ministry. And what did my friend do? He hid amongst the baggage. Like he tried everything. Like he went to a different career, to a different career, to a different career. He even tried straying from God, wandering from God, almost giving up on the Christian life until he gets to the point where he could not do that. And he gave in to that calling from God. Is that you though? I mean, this evening is God. Has he put something on your heart? Is he calling you maybe to overseas mission work? Is he calling you even to full-time Christian service? Is he calling you to an area of ministry and service in London City Presbyterian Church? And he's put this on your heart and you're resisting it. You're resisting it. You know it's there, but you're resisting it. Hiding amongst the baggage. I've got really bad news for you, if that's you. Think about Saul, what happens to him. You can't hide from God. And a second question. See, when you look at Saul cowering amongst the bags, Mizpah, aren't you amazed by the glory of your king? I mean, what is this that we're dealing with tonight? What is it? The coronation? The enthronement? And Saul is hiding away. Well, wait a minute. A couple of weeks ago in this place here in the morning service, what did we look at? We looked at the coronation. Do you remember the mock enthronement ceremony of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Romans? And what did we see? What did we notice? That's right, that Jesus predicted all of the suffering that he knew in advance, all of the pain and the mockery and the derision that he would face. And knowing that, what did our king do? Did he shrink back? Did he hide amongst the baggage? Knowing all of the suffering, knowing the death and the pain, such as our king, that he accepts even the crown of thorns. You look at this and don't you praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Unlike Saul, what do we have tonight? Such as God's care for his people, we have a willing monarch. And then the last thing this evening, we have a divisive sovereign. A divisive sovereign. That's the last thing. A daring preacher, a disobedient appointee, and a divisive sovereign. I'm pretty sure all of us in here uh, will have seen footage of that coronation service that I was talking about, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, most of you probably think of that Netflix series, The Crown, when I talk about this sort of thing. But maybe you've even seen photographs of the crowds and the jubilation uh, uh, for, what was it, the 1953 coronation. Now, is that sort of thing that we're dealing with here? That sort of party atmosphere, isn't it? Because do you see what the people do? They find Saul. They move away the bags and they grab him with a scruff of the neck and they take him out in amongst the crowds and they put him in the middle and he looks the part. 
doesn't he? They have to literally look up to this man. He is tall, and they are singing, Long live the king, and there's this part celebratory atmosphere. Or at least there is for a moment. Because I wonder if you see what, what happens. These people, this nation, are in for the biggest shock. Because do you see what, look at verse 25, what does Samuel do? Now these people are expecting a king like all the other nations, but Samuel reads out the duties and responsibilities that Saul is going to have as king over Israel. And I think that has in view what I read earlier on. Did you notice it? Deuteronomy chapter 17. Do you see the shock? The people are expecting a king just like all the other nations. And Samuel's saying, not a bit of it. That the king over Israel must be subject to the word of God. That he must be not a king like all the other nations. He must be an obedient and a God-fearing king. Do you see what a buzz killer he is? What a shock that must have been to the people. But I want to pull everything together and I want us to close with this. By me highlighting the division that this king causes. And I thought about this this week. I really did. And I wrestled with how to illustrate this. What, what illustration, how to use this as a parallel. And what I must do, I think, is bring you back to the idea of an induction. Because if you have been in a church at a time of an induction of a minister... Sometimes it really doesn't work out like it's meant to work out. What's the ideal? The ideal is that the whole congregation is behind the new man. Isn't that the idea? What's the problem with that? We are sinners. And very often, it's not like that. Very often you will have a small faction of people in a congregation and they don't want this guy. We don't want him. We don't, we're not behind this new man. Now, do you see in Scripture that is exactly as it was for Saul? Look at verse 26, 27. Look at verse 26. You've got some who side with this new king. I love how they're described. You notice they are men of valor and their hearts have been touched by God and they are supportive of this new king. That's verse 26. But look immediately, verse 27. You've got people on the other side of it. Literally, it says, you have their sons of Belial. You've got people who are against Saul, people who do not want Saul, people who are not willing to honor Saul. And do you see the root of the problem? Look at it. They doubt his ability to save. They doubt his ability to deliver his people. Now, what did I say at the start of the sermon? I said, here, we're pointed to Christ. And aren't we? In Luke chapter 12, that is exactly what Jesus says of his own kingdom. He says, it will be divisive. And so I am compelled by scripture to ask you this this evening. I can't avoid it even if I wanted to. Which side are you on? Are you on the side that supports the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you amongst those whose hearts have been touched 
by God, by His grace, by His Holy Spirit, are you on the side of King Jesus? Or are you on the other side tonight? And friend, in here, are you someone who's a son of Belial? Someone who is against the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone who doubts him. Someone who will not honor him because you doubt that he has the power to save. As you leave this building, if that is you, can I assure you of one thing? King Jesus has the power to deliver you from your sin. Femi, who's a friend of the congregation, this week on Facebook posted one of my favorite quotes. It's a quote by Thomas Watson. And the quote says this, There is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in us. There is more grace in Christ Jesus than there is sin in us. Do you see what it means? There is nothing you've done. There is nothing No matter how abhorrent it seems to you, no matter how wicked and evil, there is nothing that Christ cannot cleanse and forgive. There is nothing in your past. There is no event. There is nothing, no atrocity that is beyond the saving power of the spilt bloods of the Lamb of God. There is nothing. So surely because of that, every one of us, we fall before Jesus tonight, don't we? Because what do we have in Christ? We have a willing monarch. But we have a king, and a king who is able to save. Let's pray.